With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The Oracle Network. Riddle Me That is a true crime podcast that deals with adult themes. Some episodes explore disturbing topics such as murder, abuse, sexual violence, drug abuse, suicide, and self-harm. Please listen at your own risk. Theories discussed in episodes may not be the opinion of the host. Welcome back to part two of our coverage on the disappearances of Susan Osborne and her son Evan Chartrand in 2017. Where we last left off, it had been about two months since they'd been missing, and family members and Susan's best friend, Holly, were just starting to piece it all together. Let's get right back into it. So once, you know, the family and Holly compare notes, they call the police, and the police are instructed by the family to do a welfare check on Susan and Evan. The investigators arrive at Jerry's home, and they see right away that he's been doing a deep clean and has so much incense burning that it's difficult for the officers to remain inside. The smell is so overwhelming. As someone that is allergic to incense, I can definitely sympathize with them. That would also cause me to leave the house immediately. But then I would also be like, why are you burning so much incense? Like, didn't you just clean? Like, what is, what is the point of this? It just seems so strange. It's like, you caught me on cleaning day. Why are you burning that much incense? It's just, it's such a weird thing. And I spoke to Dr. Ken Lang about this, who, um, you know, teaches like law enforcement officers or those who are going to become law enforcement officers. And he's a former homicide detective. And he said that decomposing bodily fluids and blood, like if there was even a dead body in there for any amount of time, it can smell incredibly foul. I'm sure like this is gross. So, you know, earmuff it if you're guys and you don't want to hear this fast forward 10 seconds. But for any women know this, right? If you have any sanitary products, you don't want to leave those in the garbage for any amount of time, right? It's something that you are wanting to dispose of them very, very quickly and get that garbage can out of there because it is something that will cause a smell if you leave it there because that is basically decomposing you know, blood. So you can't, you can't just leave it lying around. So I think pretty much all women will understand that. But if you've got any dead bodies in there for any amount of time, that smell, he said, just lingers. It's not an easy smell to get rid of. So that could mean why after two months, Susan's been missing, Evan's been missing, and he is still burning incense. That seems like there must have been some kind of stench in that home that he's trying to thereby cover up. Right. And I've definitely heard that as well, that the the smell of like decomposing flesh 
is just this like lingering kind of smell. And it's like you were talking about very distinct. It's so essentially it seems like Jerry's trying to cover it up because, you know, if law enforcement comes in to do this welfare check, they're obviously trained in these kinds of things to know what it smells like. And so that's going to send off red flags for them if they smell, you know, decomposing flesh, they smell blood, something like that. So I, I get that he's seemingly trying to cover his bases, but it also looks really suspicious still to have just an incredible amount of incense burning in your home. Yeah. And like, I really wonder what it would have been like if the officers would have gone, you know, say a couple days after, a few days after. It seems likely that there would have been some kind of stench in the home because if he's still needing to burn incense and copious amounts months later, two months later, this had to be a very foul and difficult to remove smell. Right. So obviously this is all very suspicious. And Jerry just says again, like he did on the 31st of May, that he was caught on cleaning day. So the police ask him where Susan is. And he says that she left with a man in a pickup truck. He goes on to describe the man as being six feet tall with a beard and sunglasses. They ask how he got such a good look at the man. And he says via his security system. Well, perfect. We have video evidence. They ask Jerry if they can see it. And Jerry says he got rid of it and has an all new security system. So no evidence of the existence of this man whatsoever. So two things. First, he's either really dumb for mentioning his security system or two, he thought that by mentioning that he got a new one, it would just be sort of taken at face value that the police wouldn't would kind of drop it and not need to verify that she went off with some man. I don't really understand what the point is of mentioning that you have a security system if you're not going to also then produce the evidence or give some flimsy excuse of how you have something new. Because it just seems so suspicious. It totally does. He's drawing attention to the security system. But I suppose he needs to explain it away as well. Because they're going to see these cameras everywhere. And they're going to be like, oh, perfect. You've got this high-tech security system. You can, you've obviously recorded the events that transpired. We're going to have a pretty good idea of what, you know, who came and went that day. So he knows that they're going to see that. So I guess he's then drawing attention going, see, yeah, security system. This is what I saw. And it can't be corroborated because, oh, got a new one. It's like, there's no explanation. This is just another expense that Jerry's going to incur for no clear reason. Susan's mother, Linda, had said when she was there that there was kind of an inordinate amount of security cameras all throughout the home, which in and of itself is weird. It's like, are these there to observe Susan in the home? Are they to keep people in or are they to keep people out? Right. And it does kind of make sense just given the relationship that Jerry had with Susan, that it would be sort of for his benefit to watch Susan. But I also could see it other ways too to kind of keep tabs on her, but also keep tabs on who's coming in and out of his house if he is, you know, looking at, oh, is she somehow having an affair with somebody? It it still doesn't, again, this is maybe because we listen to too much true crime, but in my mind, it doesn't explain why you got such a good look at him and then 
no one else can get a good look at him because you got a new security system. Do you not back this up onto something? Do you not have like copies of the tape somewhere? Like this is 2017. Like how is this not backed up into the cloud or something like that, where you still have access to it, even if you don't have the system anymore? I think this might've been kind of right around the time, like on the precipice of when the cloud started to be used right across the board, right? I bet you it was right around 2017 where it was like every system is backed up into the cloud and had it this happened in 2019, I don't think this would have been an issue. I think there would have been a backup and you would have been able to corroborate that information or disprove it, right? But Jerry got lucky here and that I think it was described the original security system as being rather low tech, but he seemed to have tons of cameras. So I don't know if maybe Jerry purchased a security system on purpose that wouldn't be backed up to the cloud. And I obviously don't know the details there, but it seems possible because the officers described it as what would have been grainy footage. And I don't know if they were generalizing on how security camera footage usually is or typically is, or if this was something specific to the make and model of security system that Jerry had previously. Right. So Jerry goes on to claim when officers ask him about his activities on Memorial Day, he says that he was with his parents on most of Memorial Day. Susan came back, I guess at some point, presumably with a moving van to get all of the furniture, cleaning out the place. Jerry never gives any of these details. And this is a bit of a problem because the property has been described as a one-way-in, one-way-out type of deal, and not one single person saw a moving van around that time. Um, So I don't know if you're going to speak to this in a minute or so, but what's interesting to me about this statement is what did Jerry's house look like when police were in it? You know, did it have all new furniture in it? Did it It seems to me that if she supposedly came in and cleared out the house, what what's left in the house? Did you then have to go and like purchase all these new things? Like, is it clear that these things were newly purchased? Why did no one see anybody moving out? You know, I would be curious to know what the state of Evan's room looked like. It's like this. This almost raises more questions than it answers kind of this explanation. I'm going to go into that in a minute. So put a pin in it because we'll go through some of the details and they're just seriously so bizarre. So on Memorial Day weekend, when investigators talk to neighbors, they tell a story of Jerry hauling out and burning furniture and there being a thick, dark cloud of smoke that smelled of plastic. There was a 55 gallon drum that he used as a burn barrel and another burn site on the lawn. Okay, so that answers that question. It partially does. There's even more information I'll give you in a second. So the investigators spoke to Holly the same day as they did the welfare check. And based on what she said, they got a search warrant to search the premises. They noticed fresh paint and carpets were there where there used to be hardwood. No one puts carpet if they used to have hardwood. This is so weird. The neighbors also thought his constant remodeling was strange, given this was a fairly new home around five years old. Yeah, I think that there's some people that, you know, if they just have a lot of money and nothing better to do. They'll remodel their home, you know, every two or three years. But in Jerry's case, it seemed like there was no real reason, especially if it's just him. I mean, not to stereotype too much, but generally men aren't as concerned with the look of their home. You know, they just 
need a good bed to lie in, a good shower to use. It doesn't seem like he would necessarily care what everything else looked like. Plus, like you said, who's putting carpet over hardwood? Yeah, it doesn't really make much sense and it doesn't track for me. Like, So I think all the beds were also gone, which makes one ask, did something happen to them on the beds? One of the investigators said there was very little furniture. He thought that Jerry was sleeping on a recliner in his video game room. That goes back to my comment before. Like, if the house is in this status and it's been two months since she left, even if you're maybe waiting for her to come back, you don't get a new bed for yourself to sleep on. You're going to sleep in a recliner. Like, what are you doing? Like you're going to spend money on a new security system because you didn't like your old one, but yet you're not going to buy yourself a bed, which is such a basic human need to get the proper amount of sleep. And he's his priorities are way off. Apparently he had a big screen TV and he was like playing Call of Duty or whatever he played. I'm not I have World of Warcraft. I'm not sure. But he has this giant video game set up and like it was like, a, you know, college kids kind of version of what a house would be like. They've got this you know, adult type of house, but they've got very minimal furniture. They've just got this video game room and like, that's enough. They're just going to sleep on a recliner. It's weird. I think that goes exactly back to the point I was making that, you know, men tend to not care about how their house looks. So of course, Jerry has, you know, what he needs. He has his recliner. He has his big screen TV, but it's, it's so weird to have the beds missing. Yeah. You've got to ask why, right? So when investigators investigate this burn pile and the 55-gallon drum, they find coiled springs that appear to be from a mattress. And Jerry admits that it's from Evan's bed. So which is it, Jerry? Did Susan clean out the furniture and leave Evan's bed when you claim Evan was with her? So that's also strange. Like, why wouldn't she bring her son's bed if she was going to haul out the furniture? Or is it just left behind and you burned it? Or are you just lying and Susan never came back for any furniture because Susan is in all probability deceased? Yeah. So I was just referencing Jacob's case where, you know, we heard multiple stories. And I think a lot of why that is, is because it's so hard to tell a lie the same over and over. Whereas, you know, if it's the truth, it doesn't change. So I think that's Again, another red flag when you can't even get your story straight. These are like two very different things that you're saying. It's not like, oh, she, you know, took Evan's bed and her bed. But then you say, oh, no, she just took her bed. It's like two very different things. Like either one happened or the other happened. Like they couldn't have both happened. They're not similar at all. And neither one of them still makes sense. It's just another thing that makes us call into question the validity of any of Jerry's statements because feels like he was so fully committed to Susan did this, even though like she came, took all the furniture, which she didn't provide any details. Like what kind of moving truck was it? What was, you know, the company? Because he had a security footage good enough that he saw sunglasses on the man and could say he had a beard and was about six feet tall. So then it's reasonable to assume that if Susan did take the furniture, well, what kind of vehicle did she use? Did she use a van, a moving truck? Was it something that she needed to take multiple trips for? What are these kind of details? And I don't know if they probed Jerry and they just didn't put that information out there because 
I think they would have asked him more questions. It's just not out there what his answers are. But clearly, he didn't have any good ones because there's just nothing credible there. No other, no one else in the area and all the neighbors were asked, saw a moving truck around that time period, not even the days after, the days prior. It just doesn't seem to fit, period. Right. And it just, it makes sense to me that he would have such a wildly different response because he obviously probably practiced and rehearsed the details he was going to give about the man she supposedly left with. But if police are asking, you know, who was the moving company? You know, did they bring one truck? Did they bring two trucks? Were they little trucks? Were they big trucks? Those are the kinds of things he probably wouldn't have thought to memorize and have an answer for. So of course he's just kind of flying off the cuff, making things up as he goes because he doesn't have a planned response for that because he's making it up. Yeah. I think it's a lot harder, right? When you're recalling a specific memory, it just, it's going to come to you and you don't have to put any effort into it. And it's going to sound relatively believable because it's factual in nature. Whereas this is sounding like a complete fabrication. So yeah, he's just flying off the cuff and coming up with this and hoping that it sounds good, but it just, it really doesn't sound credible in any way, shape, or form. And I'm sure the investigators are just sitting there like staring at each other going, I don't know what this guy's talking about. Like, this doesn't sound right. None of this sounds right. But what Jerry has an advantage with is he has a two-month head start. So no matter, you know, how much they feel, he might be the person who's responsible or, you know, they might know in their guts. It's not about what you what you think that you know. It's what you can prove, Right. Right. So the investigators got the State Bureau of Investigation involved, and they searched the house forensically with a fine-tooth comb, keeping in mind that Jerry had basically been constantly cleaning and burning since Memorial Day. So he had two straight months to clean up any and all traces of Susan and Evan. They sprayed luminol on the floor, and it supposedly lit up like a Christmas tree in a couple of places. I believe the kitchen was one of them. There was also a missing shutter on the door in the kitchen, and it seemed odd. One of the investigators said it wasn't necessarily the volume of blood that was as troubling as the location. And he points out the volume is difficult to quantify with luminol. So they sent the evidence to the crime lab for DNA testing, and it was inconclusive. So it was clear that there was once blood there, but there was nothing definitive proven as it wasn't conclusively tied to Evan or Susan. It was too degraded at that point, likely due to the incessant cleaning done by Jerry. Yeah, this is super frustrating. Like you said, if there had been more of a red flag that day that Hannah Grace came to the house, there might have been a better sample for, you know, police to take. But because there wasn't this like glaring red flag in their face, of course, police didn't get involved at that time. So two months passes and he's, you know, probably cleaning every day um it's it's gonna be they're gonna know it's blood but they're not gonna be able to do anything more than that with it which is really upsetting yeah that's what the really upsetting thing is for sure is that you know at that point like a few days in they would have been able to get dna like there would have been something there but the fact that all of this time passed and they aren't able to get it. They know that it was there. It's sort of like this ghost of DNA. Like, you know that it was there. You know that there was more to the scene, that there would have been something 
forensically there had they been alerted earlier, had they got a jump on the situation. But the fact that they were so much behind the eight ball here. Yeah, it's funny that you bring that up because that was something I was going to touch on in this case is that, you know, when people think of proving a case, they often think of physical evidence like DNA, you know, blood samples, hair samples, things like that. But a lot of times there's just circumstantial evidence in a case. And sometimes that can be a lot more compelling. You know, yes, it's really nice to have forensics to back you up, but I think that you can still make the case with circumstantial evidence, especially the fact that you know it was blood and in those certain locations where blood shouldn't be necessarily, you know. And so I think if you sort of paint the picture with the circumstantial evidence that you have, you know, it's it doesn't look good for Jerry. The burning, the incessant cleaning, not letting people into the home, the fact that you're not alerting anybody, her friends or family, that her and Evan are gone. You only tell people this once the welfare check happens. And then all of a sudden you have this kind of, oh, she ran off with some some guy wearing sunglasses. It's like, this is all really suspicious, you know, taken as a whole. And so I think if you're a prosecutor, you want to paint that picture. But I know that there's also the problem of not having a body and what that does to a case. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On top of just having circumstantial evidence. Yeah, I think you make a great point. I think there's just so much and it's painting a pretty clear picture here. It's just so unfortunate we don't have that. I think, I think criminally, I think like the shows, they call it what the CSI effect, right? Where juries want to have that smoking gun. They want that forensic evidence. But I think you're rarely going to find a case such as this criminally where there is so much compelling circumstantial evidence. It just seems so overwhelming that I think one could, and I'm sure that they're waiting, like they only get the one bite at the apple. You're not going with double jeopardy. You don't just get to make a case against Jerry and then you don't succeed and you try, try again. Like obviously it doesn't work like that. So they need to come correct and come prepared. And so they might be trying to make sure they've got literally everything in order, but it does seem like there's almost enough to go forward here. But again, I'm obviously not a criminal lawyer. So I'm or a prosecutor. And I know that it is about statistics and they do want to succeed when they do this and have the best possible chance. 
Right. But in my mind, it's it's kind of like the Darlie Routier, Routier case where it seems like maybe you could present a circumstantial case on one of them and then kind of save the other in case things don't go well. Because, you know, Evan and Susan are two separate people. You know, there's been two separate crimes against them. So maybe you take, you know, Evan's case on the circumstantial evidence and you keep building Susan's or vice versa. It just, I I mean, I would hope that they're still trying to build their case. And that's why, you know, what is it now? Four years later, nothing has been done. But it's also at the same time, a little bit disconcerting that, you know, maybe nothing's going to be done. That's what scares me. It's interesting you bring up the Darley case because I'm working on that one at the same time as I'm working on this one. And I always found that one interesting. Like when I first heard about that, okay, so she, I think she gets charged for the murder of Damon. Is it Damon or Devin? I can't remember one of them. Yeah. But the other one she doesn't get charged with the murder of, they don't have blood on the knife, right? So that is the weird thing. The one knife that they do have, they only have, I believe, Darley and Damon's blood. And I think there is no knife with Devin's blood. So they don't have a murder weapon. So it makes it incredibly more complex trying to prove murder of Devin in that situation when you don't have a murder weapon. And how can you explain why it isn't in the home, right? When you've got this other knife here. So I think you've got a way harder time trying to convince a jury that she's guilty of that murder, but it's a lot easier to frame it with Damon's murder. So I guess I understand that. And I mean, they could do it. They are two separate people. You could definitely go forward, but it it is a little disconcerting thinking they've got all of this. It's such a compelling circumstantial case. Sure, there's no bodies involved, but I think you can make a very good case for the fact that neither Evan nor Susan are alive. And the fact that they haven't pursued this yet, maybe there's things they're working on that we're just unaware of behind the scenes, but I really, really hope they go forward with this because I think they could make potentially a very good case for a jury here. Yeah. And I just have to say, I hate the kind of defense that no body homicides present for defendants in that the argument is essentially, oh, well, they could just walk through the door at any moment. And it's just so frustrating because while yes, that, you know, is true to some extent, if you present, like you were talking about before, the evidence that Susan hasn't used her social security number to get another job. She hasn't used any of her bank accounts. She hasn't filed taxes. You know, Evan hasn't been enrolled in some other school. His social security number is not being used. There's been no phone contact, no texts, emails, anything like that. It's like, this is painting such a clear picture that these people aren't alive. You know, they're not going to just walk through the door any minute because something has happened to them. I feel like we're almost rewarding the ability of killers when for disposing of the body like correctly or disposing of it well, when there's so much circumstantial evidence to implicate them, but then being like, oh, there's no body. You know, we can't prove this. It's like, I wish that in, in these cases, more prosecutors would take a harder stand when there is so much circumstantial evidence pointing to the fact, like you said, you can make a very good case for the fact that Susan and Evan are in fact deceased. In it seems there's they're not walking through the door at any time. You know what I mean? It's just doesn't seem to be an option here. And in so many other cases, too. But it's like that idea, like, oh, I can't make the case to the jury because 
we don't have a body. I really hope that that's changing and evolving because it does seem to be that there are more no body homicide cases going forward. And I think maybe that is with the, you know, the enhanced sophistication of forensics and also with the forensics involved with electronics as well. You can probably paint a better circumstantial picture than you used to be able to in, say, the 1980s. Right. And I'm so glad you said that because that was something I was going to bring up that, you know, the reason here that there's no bodies is because he had two months to burn them and dispose of them. Of course, there's no bodies, you know, like you said, all along, he had a two month head start. He had two months to plan and decide what he was going to do before anybody even knew they were gone. So of course, his ultimate end goal is, you know, getting rid of them, getting rid of any evidence. He gave, he was given plenty of time to do that. And like you said, he shouldn't be rewarded for that because he, like you said, planned well. Yeah, it's one of those upsetting things, right? It's like, oh, you did a really good job. Like you either, you know, threw them in the right body of water or you, you know, burned them or you dug a hole and buried them somewhere that nobody found them. So therefore, we're not going to go forward with charges. I think in something in a case like this, there's just so much compelling evidence that we so rarely see. I think there's often so much more ambiguity with these types of cases, with missing persons cases. But I think this one, there's so much specificity. We've got all the issues regarding Jerry, everything that he's been doing that feels like he's very likely trying to conceal bodies, very likely trying to conceal the truth. We've got two individuals, Susan and Evan, who are both completely out of contact with all of their loved ones. There's been no registration for school, no bank activity, no cell phone activity. It seems like there's so much problematic and troubling behavior on the part of Jerry that we're very clearly seeing a picture emerge. And I think a prosecutor could easily paint that picture for a jury that would you know, make them believe beyond a reasonable doubt that Jerry Osborne is indeed, in fact, responsible for the disappearance and subsequent murders of both Evan Chartrand and Susan Osborne. Pat, you know, as much as as much planning as he did, this is also still a roadmap for how not to act after somebody disappears. So he obviously didn't do, maybe he did really good planning, but he didn't do a lot of good acting afterward. No, I think he was resting on his laurels like, hey, they can believe what they want to believe about me, but they literally cannot prove anything because I covered my bases. So I can act however I want to act and they can think whatever they want to think, but that doesn't mean they can prove that I did anything or that I murdered them in court. So we spoke of the 55-gallon burn barrel and the burn site. Investigators sifted through looking for anything they could use forensically to test, a tooth or bone fragment perhaps, but they found nothing. The investigators seemed split on if it was possible that Jerry could have burned both bodies down to nothing in two months. Would the heat be enough? Could he have done it without a vile stench, etc.? The neighbors did complain of an odor of plastic, but to my knowledge, none had said it smelled as though he was cooking meat. And I have heard it can smell like pork, but like I said, when I talked to Dr. Ken Lang, he said as a homicide detective, he'd smelled burned bodies before and that it could be incredibly stomach-turning. It's a smell you just don't forget. You've got flesh burning, hair burning. So I, of course, have no idea, but I do find it hard to believe that no one would notice the smell of burning human flesh over a period of days and months. Yeah, burning is one of those things I feel like neighbors often pay attention to. It's 
just to, you know, if there is some kind of unusual stench, even if it's just like you said, the smell of burning plastic, neighbors don't like funky burning smells. So I would think that you would smell something like that and notice it and complain probably. Yeah, I I find that so odd. I mean, when I interviewed him, he brought up, well, did any of the neighbors call the police? And it was sort of like, okay, well, this is a small town. I think there was like, or maybe city, it was like 3,600 people. So maybe you don't want to start trouble with your neighbors. You don't want to like raise a fuss and you're just like, oh, there's that weird guy, Jerry, burning again. But I've got to believe if it continued to smell like flesh and only Jerry is there, what is he possibly burning? You know what I mean? Because it would take days to get a body to that point. Like I remember looking into this with the Slaughter Children case and crematoriums burn bodies at I think between 1800 degrees and 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. And so a house, a typical house fire, which I could imagine a barrel fire, burn barrel or fire outside might burn around the same. It was around like 800 to 1000 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's like half, right? And it takes over two hours for a crematorium burning at that temperature to burn a body down to nothing. And that's very consistent heat. It's closed. So that's why I remember in the Sauter children case, it was weird that these bodies were gone in, you know, a 45 minute fire that was burning at way less heat than a crematorium and not even a tooth fragment was found, but yet appliances seem relatively intact. So here, sure, it seems possible just if we were to dis- like discount the smell. Sure, the time frame possible if smell wasn't, you know, a factor. I believe he could have got those bodies down to nothing and then potentially taken the ash and scattered it somewhere else. He might not have had that ash there. There could have been nothing but ash from furniture at that point. He could have been very aware that these would have been points of interest for law enforcement, taken the ash with all the bone fragments, scattered them, buried them, done something with them, and then continued to burn furniture on top of that. So when they went and searched it like he knew they would, they'd find nothing. But again, that smells what I keep coming back to. Yeah, the smells odd, you know, I think especially if we're looking at he has 2 months to to do this in my mind that's probably enough given the temperature that's required and if he's, you know, constantly doing this to burn it down to nothing, it does seem like the time frame fits. But like you said, the the smell is really distinct. And obviously there was some kind of smell in the house because he was still burning incense, you know, two months later. So it is just incredibly strange that nobody would notice something as distinct as that. Yeah. And cadaver dogs were used during the search. One may have alerted in the home, but it wasn't a strong alert. That was sort of alluded to in the Secrets True Crime podcast, but it wasn't specifically said, so take that as you will. It was kind of like, oh, well, one may have alerted, but it wasn't a strong alert. So I, I don't know exactly what happened inside. But two cadaver dogs at completely separate times without knowledge of the other dog and handler hit on a shed just outside Jerry's property. The investigators dug there, but it was very quickly apparent that no bodies were buried there. That to me just kind of signals that maybe he put the bodies there at some point and then moved them. You know, I think oftentimes we see that where there's a shed or there's, um, you know, some kind of location on the property where they'll hit, but they find nothing. I think that kind of happened in the Kristen Smart case. You know, they found 
ascent as well and where a body had recently been moved. So I think that happens a lot and it's significant. But again, you know, not being able to find those bodies is got to be really frustrating for investigators. Yeah, it's got to be incredibly frustrating. But I think you're right. It's one of those intermittent disposal sites. Until he figures out the final resting place or where he's going to dispose of the bodies, he knows that he needs to get those bodies out of the home. Because at that point, maybe they're starting to decompose already. They're going to start to smell. This is happening around Memorial Day. So it's the 29th of May. It's in Alabama. I can imagine the temperatures are pretty high. With a decomposing body, you're going to have that stench in your home. So he would quickly, if he'd done this, want to get those bodies out, figure out another location where the smell won't be in his home because he's probably hyper aware the cadaver dogs could be used. So then maybe he moves them outside, like you said, to that shed. They sit there for a while and that's what the dogs are alerting to. I don't know how long they sat for while he decided to formulate a plan on where to put them next or you know where to dispose of them. Yeah, I'm sure that was where they sat. It's not like the dogs were together and they both alerted together. It was like they did it at a separate time. So you know, one isn't going to bias the other one by like, oh, well, this dog alerted there. Therefore, I'm going to go alert there. This dog had no idea. So on a side note, speaking of dogs, this detail really bothers me. So as I mentioned earlier, Susan, Evan, and Jerry had two small dogs, Sugar and Schnook. So they were described as more Susan and Evan's pets. So in the aftermath of the disappearance, before authorities did the welfare check and subsequent search, the dogs had been taken to the Humane Society by Jerry's father. When he dropped off the dogs, he gave one correct name, Sugar, and he referred to the other dog as Susan. I mean, this detail made my eyes nearly bulge out of my head. So I hate when animals are involved in cases. Like, obviously, thankful nothing happened to these animals in this case. But this reminds me of a case that I covered not too long ago where this woman had two, um, I believe they were corgis, and she never went anywhere without them. And then they were left with her husband who absolutely hated them. And everybody was like, there's no way that she would just leave her dogs, especially with somebody who hated her dogs. And this again, is just one more hole in his story. Like why wouldn't, if they were their dogs, why wouldn't they take them? And then to your question, how insulting is it to refer to a dog as Susan? Are you like, I can't tell if that's a slip of the tongue or if you're just like a seriously sick individual that you would reference something like that. Yeah. Like in no way, shape or form, could he have believed that this dog was indeed named Susan? Do you know what I mean? Like who names their dog after themselves? It's like, okay, either he, it was just a slip of the tongue. He forgot the dog's name. Its name is Schnook. He said Susan. It was like some kind of Freudian slip. I have no idea. But to your other point, it's either that or this person is an extremely sick individual. And that's, it was like a tongue in cheek thing. It was meant to be rude. I don't know his intentions or anything about that individual. So I can't speak to their character or what their intentions may have been. It just is a really disturbing part of the story, no matter how you look at it. Right. And it's funny that you mentioned the kind of like Freudian slip. It seems like Sugar and Susan are a little bit closer than Schnook and Susan, if you're going to kind of interchange the two. Like Susan and Schnook don't sound anything alike. It just, of 
all the things to say that you think that dog's name is, Susan seems like the last thing you should say. Oh, I 100% agree. And I, like I said, I cannot speak to the intention of what he was trying to do when he said this. I also hate that they dropped the dogs off at the Humane Society without contacting friends or family of Susan. It seems really, really gross. It's very weird. And then it's also just weird. Like, I would hope that, you know, if something happened to you, that your husband wouldn't just take Winston to the Humane Society and say bye. (laughs) Yeah, it's just sort of like, oh, these... This creature that meant so much to this person that I love, I'm just going to not contact friends or family. I'm just going to drop them off at the Humane Society. Like, what? And it's one thing for Jerry to do that. A whole other thing for his parents to agree to go along with it. Right. So at this point, when family members in Holly were alerted to what had become of the dogs, and they looked further into it, and Sugar had been adopted out, but Schnook was still at the Humane Society. So Holly was distraught, but she was all the way in Key West, a pretty long drive away from Alabama. So she spoke to her husband and he was like, we've already got three dogs, Holly. So she then calls her mother and her mom says, "Okay, I'm going to go and get Schnook. So Holly was like, oh, my goodness. Thank God, because she was willing to make the drive all the way to Alabama. Schnook lives with Holly's parents in Alabama. At least there was a happy ending for them. I know. At least we've got a happy ending for Sugar here. At least she's with somebody who cares. And Holly got to know that Schnook is with her family. So that's one bright spot. It's sad that Sugar was already adopted out, but hopefully to a family that very much cares. Right. And again, it doesn't make me feel good to know, you know, that animals are sort of cast aside in this story. But it does make sense, given everything we've seen from Jerry, that he would do something like this. I guess if you're just going to cast humans aside, like if you're going to cast a 14-year-old boy and your wife aside as if they're nothing, if we're to believe like in all probability that he's the most likely person that did this and that they are in fact deceased, then yeah, I guess casting animals aside isn't a big deal to somebody like that. But for some reason, I guess because we cover true crime, we're so often covering individuals that are doing this to other human beings the odd time that animals are involved, it is particularly jarring because I think so many true crime fans are big animal lovers. So it just hits you in the heart. It's like stuff involving little kids. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Right. And it's just, it's like you said, I would think that if something happened to me that you know, my significant other would want to keep that animal as sort of, you know, a a piece of me, even if I didn't, you know, nothing happened to me in a tragic way, even if I just, you know, died of natural causes. Why would you want to give up my cat, 
you know, everybody knows how much I love Winston (laughs) and it's like having a piece of that person, you know, I guess his argument is probably, Hey, she cheated on me. She left me for this other man. Therefore I don't want any reminders of her or those kids. So I'm still going to keep paying child support, but get rid of the dogs. He makes no sense. (laughs) Nope. Not even a little bit. So I'd brought up the fishing boat earlier that Susan had purchased and redone, and Jerry had suspiciously listed on Craigslist. So during the search, the boat was nowhere to be found. It appeared that Jerry at some point did in fact sell it on Craigslist. The investigators tracked it down and it was forensically tested, but nothing came from that forensic sweep of the boat. Again, there was two months between the time that Susan went missing and Jerry was being investigated as a person of interest in her and Evan's disappearance. So it is possible that he may have used the boat to dispose of the bodies, given the vast amount of water in the area with the Coosa River and Lake Jordan, and even thoroughly cleaned the boat. It's just impossible to say. One very interesting thing happens. There's a bizarre 911 call that comes after the search warrant is issued and the welfare check happens. This comes from the father of Hannah Grace's home and seems to be requesting a welfare check for Susan Osborne. It's unclear who exactly makes this call. He lived close by and some believe it was Jerry since the two men were in contact regarding Jerry paying the child support for Hannah Grace. It just seems odd that in a town of 3,600, and I'm sure news got around very fast about the search warrant being served and the welfare check. So why at this moment request a welfare check? It's clear the father of Hannah Grace should have raised alarm bells sooner, but had a clear financial motive not to. That's so weird. I don't understand why, what purpose does this serve, you know, to Jerry if he is the one who does it? It, I mean, it still doesn't look good for him, even if you make this 911 call. It just seems weird no matter who did it. Like some people had said maybe Jerry did it. I don't necessarily understand the motivation in Jerry making this call. It seems odd. But the father of Hannah Grace, I get how he could have motivation in doing so because he's trying not to look suspicious because how does two months go by and you haven't raised any red flags? So now it's like, oh, they're searching. I better call 911 for a welfare check. It's a little odd with the timing. Right. So none of Jerry's explanations were satisfactory to Holly and the lack of answers in the investigation was heartbreaking. She knew that Jerry was trying to disparage her friend in these ways. One by saying she was having an affair and AKA she left with another man. And I didn't go into this, but he also said that she sprayed obscenities on the walls and floor before she left. And that's why he had to do the remodel with the carpet and the repainting. And three, that Susan basically stole from Jerry and that she cleaned out their belongings from the home. Four, in saying all of this, he's also saying that Susan abandoned her daughter, Hannah Grace, which everyone said All of these things were so out of character for Susan and that she would never leave her daughter behind. I don't even know where to begin. But the obscenities thing as the reason for why you had to replace the carpets and had to paint your house is just hysterical to me. Like that just, yes, I'm sure on somewhere on God's green earth that could happen, but it just like makes no sense to me. Like it sounds like from the story you've told before, She meets this bearded man with sunglasses. She packs up all of the things in her van, her moving van, and then she leaves. When does she have time to also spray obscenities? And why is she doing that? It seems like you, Jerry, would be more likely to do that because you're so mad about everything happening. But it also just 
none of it still makes sense. It's like going back to the point that we made earlier. Why wouldn't she take Hannah Grace? You know, if I could see, like we talked about, if she's not also taking Evan, she leaves both kids behind. That makes perfect sense to me. She's trying to, you know, start her new life, trying to get back on her feet so that she can have the kids. Okay, that makes sense. But you either take one or both. Like, I just I keep going back to that. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, I don't understand it either. It makes no sense to me. And the way he described these obscenities too, he described them as sprayed in different colors to different people. So like, I don't know if he said it was sprayed in black to one person and then red to another person, but there was some inconsistencies there. And also everybody says Susan wasn't a vindictive person, that this was not at all in her personality. She would just want to get out of a bad situation. She wasn't about to go and spray obscenities. That's something like a teenager would do. You know what I mean? It's not something a grown woman in her 40s is going to do. It just doesn't track with what we know about Susan. And he doesn't have any evidence of this. If this did indeed happen, wouldn't you take photos of it? Right. And it seems like, you know, we were talking about earlier, if Susan is at this point where she is at her wit's end, she wants to get out of this relationship. She is, you know, getting her stuff, getting her son's stuff. They're in the van leaving. Why would she, like you said, sit there and take time to be vindictive? Like, it seems like from everything we've discussed in kind of the timeline and the arc of everything, she just wants to leave. You know, she doesn't want to hurt Jerry. She doesn't, you know, want to harm his property. She just wants to leave, you know, so nobody's going to do that on their way out of the situation. She just wants to take her stuff and leave. Why would she sit there and do all of these things? Especially something where, you know, he could, like you said, if he took pictures, he could sit there and call the police on her for, you know, vandalizing his property or whatever. It just, it doesn't make sense, Jerry. No. And another thing he does that makes no sense to me is, you know, how typically like in this case, I think it's the State Bureau of Investigation that makes the missing persons flyers. It gives the number in which to call if you've got any information, the amount of cash reward. Well, Jerry and his parents want to pass out flyers. So you think they're just going to get some of these flyers and pass them out, but definitely not. They're going to make their own flyers. And on these flyers, there's a cash reward listed, I think, of like $5,000 multiple times on the poster. But also when it comes to where to call with information, it's not the State Bureau of Investigation or the local police. It's Jerry's parents. What are Jerry's parents going to do? They're not investigators. Why? Why would you do that? Oh, I think you do that because you want to be in control of the flow of the information. If someone's going to come forward with a tip, you might not be able to stop them by having them report it there first, but you've got the ability to thereby craft the story around it, right? So it somehow gives Jerry control. Maybe he can stop information from flowing to law enforcement. He can figure out what people actually know, and then he can appropriately have his answers in order so he's more prepared I can't think of any other reason. His parents aren't investigators. You know, they seem incredibly involved in his life by all accounts. After Susan's disappearance, I found very strange, not after her disappearance, like they were very well aware of this, but it was after she was like reported missing and they'd done the welfare check. The parents were there at the house showing support, doing his yard work, doing all these things for him. Yet they weren't there before when she was missing. So it's sort of like, is this just for optics? Is this just to appear as though Jerry is distraught? Jerry needs all this help because 
Jerry would have been in that situation before. And he was doing all this cleaning and remodeling. Surely he could have used his parents' help then, but yet they were nowhere to be found. So this all just seems very strange. And one more thing is they also used to stay over at his house, which many people have said is kind of weird because they lived a very short distance away. So why do you need to sleep over at your adult son's house once a week? And like no judgment if he was actually distraught and needed the support. But this didn't happen right in the aftermath of when Susan left. This was after law enforcement got involved. They're not doing any favors to Jerry (laughs) by making him look any better. You definitely made a good point about, you know, knowing what we know about Jerry. I think it, it does make a lot of sense to include his parents' number, like you said, to sort of keep in the know of what other people know. You know, he can obviously control so much outside of kind of his little nucleus. He can't control, you know, if neighbors are going to call the police and, you know, what they're going to say. But at least if somebody calls his parents, like you said, he has the heads up of what information they have. So he can say, oh, explain it away, you know. And he's obviously got all this extra energy now. He's used to having to control Susan and the capacity in which he did that took a considerable amount of energy and time and focus. So now he doesn't have to do that. So now he can channel that energy into something else. And if that's controlling the flow of information, that could be something that would be directly beneficial to Jerry. So I could see why he went out of his way to do it, but it also makes him look really suspect. Like, why would you not have the information go to law enforcement? Why make one where it goes to your parents. How does that look to law enforcement when they're looking at that? They're like, whoa, buddy, you're looking pretty suspect here. Right. So one thing that's of note, but I apologize, is very vague, is Jerry's internet search history. I don't know exactly what investigators found, but I believe it was incendiary because they basically said it wasn't something that a typical human being would be searching for under any circumstances. I mean, we can speculate all day long. Was it related to the disposal or dismemberment of a body? Who knows? But it was enough to raise major eyebrows. It's funny that you say that it wasn't something a typical human being would be searching under any circumstances, because I feel like those of us who do true crime (laughs) podcasts have some really bad search histories, but at least we can explain those away by saying it was just true crime research. But I think for the most part, most people who aren't true crime podcasters don't have these kind of weird search histories. Like, how do you burn a body? Like, what temperature does a body have to be burned at to be, you know, completely disposed? So there, like you said, we can speculate all day, but it's obviously something that kind of raised more of a red flag for them. I feel like it's got to be something related to that. And it's funny you say that because I always think my husband, like like nothing bad better happen to you because if it does, the fingers are going to be all pointed at me, right? Like look at her search history. She's a true crime podcaster. Of course she did it. So I'm like, better, better not let anything happen to you because I'm going to be in trouble. But I think we definitely will search those. But I bet you the language used when somebody is searching it for the purpose of actually disposing of a body themselves or wanting to burn a body themselves might be something like, how do you burn a body? Might not be what temperature does a body, you know, like what we would be searching for. What temperature does a body burn? How long does a body need to burn for? How long do I need to burn a body for? Might be the language used. And somebody might not think about that because if you're going to be searching that, it might look incriminating if you're not a true crime podcaster in every context, right? 
Like, unless you're doing something school related and you're like a pathologist or you're some kind of death investigator, then it makes sense. Or you work on the body farm. Sure. You know, one of those things. Okay. But most career paths, most hobbies, this would not fit. So I doubt in a situation like that, you would think, oh, if I use the language, how, you know, what temperature does a body need to burn at in order to dispose of versus how long do I need to burn a body at? I don't know if you would necessarily distinguish between the two types of language used because both would be incriminating when you don't have a proper context. Right. And like you said, there's just such a small subset of people that would be interested in this information for a non-nefarious purpose. You know, like you said, like research or a pathologist, most people in their average day aren't wondering, oh, I wonder what body temperature, you know, what it burns at, you know, nobody is looking that up on the regular. So it's got to be something that just, there's such a small group of people that would ever need to know this information that it's, police are like, why would this be in his search history? But yeah, with regards to Jerry, I think I just really wish we knew more of his internet search history, but I've got to believe that this is one of those things the investigators are keeping close to the best because if they release this sort of information, they're tipping their hand, Jerry's going to know what they have. And I really, really hope that behind the scenes, I mean, the last year and a half, we've been dealing with the pandemic. So potentially they may be trying to get enough information to go forward and to take it to court. And the protracted timeline has to do with the fact that courts are clogged. I mean, you can probably speak to that, right? It's just not going forward in the way that it should be. Right. And I think to that point as well, it's just, it's a good reminder that your search history, just because you can clear it, it's never really clear. (laughs) So people should really stop searching incriminating things. (laughs) Yeah, you'd think that people would know at this point, if you're going to go and search something like that, if you're going to do it on any of your personal devices, aka your phone, your computer, it's going to be stored somewhere. If you're going to go to some random computer you don't have to sign in for at the library or whatever, if there still is one around where you are, and you can go use a computer without being monitored, then sure, if you're going to go search that, they might not be able to tie it to you. But yet they might. I don't know. You're swiping in a card. Maybe they're searching it. Maybe they aren't. Maybe they can't tie that you were there that day. Who knows? But doing it on your personal devices and expecting that you're going to be able to erase it this day and age is just such a naive expectation. Oh, yeah. Because you know that their search warrant had to cover, you know, his phones, his computers, things like that. And I mean, that's just pretty standard for most of today's search warrants, you know. So clearing your history isn't going to do anything. They can get into the actual, you know, hard drive of your computer where all the things are stored and just don't search it on your personal devices to begin with. And the funny thing is like one thing I didn't touch on is related to Jerry's, you know, different affairs with men. Susan had found out that he was getting all these burner phones why not use a burner phone and then just destroy the evidence? It seems like this was a slip up on the part of Jerry. Like there's a few, right? Where Jerry slips up. And there's one that I also didn't mention. That's kind of a big deal is early on, like Evan has this oral was supposed to have this oral surgery on the 31st, that same day that Hannah Grace came by. And so on that day, he's, I think it was supposed to be, I don't know what exactly, what exact kind of surgery it was, but Jerry had a bill for this surgery 
or so he said. And this was used as like an alibi or as proof that Susan and Evan were indeed alive. And I think it was silly to kind of posit this as a reason and think that investigators weren't going to look into this any deeper because when they did, it was just a bill for a no-show. It wasn't a bill for the fact that Evan had indeed had this procedure. So it's like the fact that he tried to push this forward, like, look, look, see, see, they're still alive. It's like, why are you pushing so hard on this? You should have just said, oh, wow, he didn't show up to his surgery. That's weird. That would have made him look far more credible than being like, he's alive. See? Yeah. It's like you said, they're obviously going to follow up with the dentist, you know, or the oral surgeon, because why wouldn't they, if you say that he has this big surgery that day and you know, it's obviously big enough that Hannah Grace is coming afterwards to see her brother and give him a gift. It's obviously something that's been well known to the people in the family. So of course, they're going to verify, hey, did, you know, Evan and Susan come by for this appointment? The bill for a no show is not proof of anything. It literally proves the opposite. Like they weren't there. I know it just the fact that he was so, you know, kind of hell bent on this being sort of like an alibi, like, see, they were there at this time. They were fine at this time. I haven't done anything wrong. It, it just kind of makes him look even more suspect rather than looking into it. Wouldn't he look into the amount of money that was charged? Right. Like, I don't know with regards to insurance, how much, you know, the insurance paid on these sorts of procedures and whatnot. But I would think that a bill would indicate what exactly was done or wasn't done. It would just say that this is a no-show, aka you're getting charged, you know, $200 for a no-show or whatever it is, right? Some kind of fee for the fact that he didn't show up. But I wouldn't think that you would be able to confuse an oral surgery for a no-show. But I think Jerry was just so keen to be able to produce some kind of evidence that he pushed this a little bit too hard and didn't realize how bad it made him look. Right. So that's pretty much all we have for the case of Susan Osborne and Evan Chartrand. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up, Elise? No, just that, you know, I hope that there is some movement behind the scenes to kind of bring a case against Jerry if he's the one who's, you know, behind all of this. And, you know, unfortunately, I think given everything we know about the events of this case, it makes me really sad that their family probably won't have any kind of, you know, closure in the sense of they'll never have their family's remains returned to them. And they may never honestly know what truly happened to Susan and Evan. And that makes me really sad. So for that, I hope that prosecutors are still working the case and trying to, you know, bring justice for them if they can. Yeah, I really and truly hope that that they do take this case to court because I think there is overwhelming circumstantial evidence that they very well could secure a conviction on a no-body homicide, which I know is an incredibly difficult thing to do, especially when you don't have forensics. But I think this is a rare case that the circumstantial evidence and the corroborating witness testimony that they're going to get from friends and family, it it just paints so much of a picture that I just don't think that there's any reasonable person who's going to believe that Evan and Susan are still alive. And they're going to believe that Jerry Osborne wasn't the person who was indeed responsible. So I think, yeah, they've got their work cut out for them. But I think that in the end, they could be successful and that to wait even longer, it's sort of like, well, what else are you going to get? Do you know what I mean? Like, you're obviously not getting forensics. There's no other forensics to be had here. So you're 
you built a pretty pretty good like circumstantial case. So the only other thing that would be left here from you know where I'm sitting would be if another eyewitness came forward or if somebody else came forward to say Jerry did this or his parents cracked or something like that. I don't know. It just I can't think of anything else that they would need or would be able to get at this point. Can you? The only other thing I would mention would be a confession. And I think knowing what we know about Jerry, that's not going to happen. That's never going to happen. You know, he planned this. If he did this, he made a huge plan for it. He had two months of a head start. Why on earth would he confess now? Yeah, I just don't think that there's anything, you know, indicated in Jerry's behavior that he's going to be the type of person who would indeed be pressured into confessing. I think he's seen the fact that he's been able to be free for this long as evidence to the fact that he's done potentially, if he's the person who indeed did this, has done a good job cleaning this up. So why would he then put all that hard work and, you know, effort to waste? This is a person who lives to control other people. If we are to believe the, you know, statements of Holly and those close to Susan and Evan, you know, he was indeed a controlling person in their opinion. So I think that this is someone who believes he has control over this situation right now. So why would he thereby relinquish control and give up being in the driver's seat? He feels probably likely feels as though he's in the power position. Why would you want to give that up? Right. You know, as it stands currently, while there is this circumstantial evidence against him, as we've discussed, there's nothing physical linking him, you know, and there's no bodies to sort of point any further forensics to either. So it's like, like you said, he can go around thinking they don't have anything on me. Like, yes, they can say all these things. They can think that I did it. They can say that I did it. But if I don't actually come out and say that I did it, there's nothing linking me to these crimes. That for all we know, Susan is off with that bearded man with the sunglasses. Yeah, I hate that. There's just so much about that that's troublesome. The fact that he's got such a detailed description of some man right down to his height. And like, you can't tell height when somebody's sitting down well in a pickup truck from far away. How could you even guess that this guy is six feet? Like that detail is so bizarre. I can't even tell people's height when they're standing in front of me. (laughs) So we know that Susan has told Holly about all the affairs that Jerry is having, which I think is almost more embarrassing and more difficult to address than it would be if she herself was going to say, hey, Holly, I met somebody else. I've fallen in love. I think I'm going to leave Jerry. I think at that point, Holly would have been happy for her. I think what she was witnessing with her friend was really upsetting. So the fact that Susan told nobody about this supposed other man that she was going to run away with and run away from Jerry, I I just don't buy it. Right. Like you said, it's so much easier to say, I met someone, like, I'm going to take Evan, like, we're going to run off together, rather than, like, she told something to Holly that was, like, incredibly embarrassing and, you know, heartbreaking for her. I certainly wouldn't want to find any of that kind of evidence. So the fact that she, you know, was vulnerable to share that makes me think, like you, that she would share something Like, oh, I met someone and I can leave. Like, Holly would be happy for her to be able to leave this situation. So, of course, she would tell her. I can get behind that she wouldn't tell her parents. She wouldn't tell her brothers because 
that can be one of those things where they might not know all of the ins and outs of their relationship. So to just kind of volunteer that information without context, they might be like, oh, weird. But Holly, she knew the ins and outs of what was going on between Jerry and between Susan. And I don't think, like according to Holly, that she believes that Jerry even knew that Holly knew because they'd um, corresponded in secret with emails that Jerry didn't have access to. So I think that's why he was so overbearing in her face, needing to be out in public with her, listening to conversations on speaker. Part of this all had to be this concealing of his secret life, this desire to keep everything hidden. And so in order to do so, the only way that he could keep control of the situation or feel like this illusion of control was there was to monitor everything Susan did and monitor the flow of information to Susan and from Susan. Right. Okay, so that's pretty much it on the case of Susan Osborne and Evan Chartrand. Elise, I want to thank you for co-hosting this episode with me. Can you tell my listeners where to find you on social media and a little bit about your podcast one more time? Yeah, so my podcast focuses on true crime stories from the Pacific Northwest. So that includes Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Vancouver, BC in Canada. And we release new episodes every other Thursday. And you can find us on Instagram at True Crime Cat Lawyer and on Twitter at True Crime Cat Law. That concludes our coverage on the disappearances of Susan Osborne and Evan Chartrand. Join me next week where I talk to Dr. Ken Lang about the case. Just in case any of you don't know, I have a Patreon. It's not Riddle Me That specific. It's both for Riddle Me That and The Path Went Chilly. It's with Dr. Ashley Wellman. And at the $5 level, we've got a Jules and Ashley episode, which either Ashley will tell me a story or I'll tell Ashley a story, and it will be solved, unsolved, conspiracy theories. At the $10 level, there will be a Path Went Chili Mini, so we'll have Robin jumping on with us for that. So we're really, really excited. If you wanted to talk to me about this case or about any case, please feel free to reach out. I honestly love talking to you all so much. I'm really active on Twitter at Podcast Riddle. Or you can email me at riddlemethatpod at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe and remember, accept nothing, question everything. Hi there, my name is Elise and I am a lawyer in the Pacific Northwest. I host this podcast, True Crime Cat Lawyer, with my co-host Winston, my cat. She is a mustache, bow-tied, fierce little ball of sass and we both come to you every other Thursday telling some stories from our hometown of the Pacific Northwest. We try to cover cases from Oregon, Washington, Alaska. We're hoping to cover some from Canada soon and we just like telling crime stories that are lesser known in the true crime community but we do also cover some of the big ones. And if you are interested in learning more about our podcast, True Crime Cat Lawyer, you can head over to our website, truecrimecatlawyer.com, or you can send us a quick email at truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and Twitter, and we are available on pretty much every podcast platform that you will listen to. We hope you enjoy what you hear, and we hope you'll tune in. Thanks.